Chapter 21 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Irene Rosenberg, Chicago, Illinois. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 21. Preparations for Leaving Nineveh. Departure for Babylon. Descent of the River. Tekrit. The State of the Rivers of Mesopotamia. Commerce upon them. Turkish Roads. The Plain of Dura. The Naharwan. Samara. Kadesia. Palm Groves. Katamain. Approach to Baghdad. The City. Arrival. Dr. Ross. A British Steamer. Modern Baghdad. Tel Mohammed. Departure for Babylon. A Persian Prince. Abdapasha's Camp. Eastern Falconry. Hawking the Gazelle. Approach to Babylon. The Ruins. Arrival at Hilach. The winter was now drawing near, and the season was favorable for examining the remains of ancient cities of Babylonia. The trustees of the British Museum had partly sanctioned a plan submitted to them for excavations among ruins, no less important and vast, and of no less biblical and historical interest than those of Nineveh. I had included in my original scheme many remarkable sites both in Chaldea and Susiana. But, as I have before observed, my limited means did not permit me to carry out my plan to its fullest extent. As the operations at Nimrud were now, however, suspended, I determined to employ fewer men at Koyunjik, and to devote myself during the cold weather to researches amongst the great mounds of southern Mesopotamia. My jabours were now so skilled and experienced in excavating that I deemed it more economical to take a party of them with me than to engage new workmen on the various sites that I might visit. At the same time, having thus my own men, I should be independent of the people of the country, who might either be unwilling to labor, or might require exorbitant pay. I accordingly selected about thirty of the best Arabs employed in the excavations at Nineveh to accompany me on the rafts which bore the sculptures. Having again entrusted Tomashisman with the superintendence of the excavations, and given him all necessary directions for carrying on the work, I quitted Mosul on the 18th of October accompanied by Hormuzd and Mr. Romaine, an English traveller on his way to India. There were cases enough containing sculptures from Koyunjik to load a raft of considerable size. Hormuzd, who had met with a severe accident, was placed in a bed on a small kelik. Mr. Romaine occupied with me another of the same size. The servants and cooking apparatus were on the large raft, and we all kept close company for convenience and mutual protection. There were still some arrangements connected with the excavations to be made at Nimrut, and it was not until the twentieth that we fairly began our voyage. The navigation of the river as far as Kalashirgat was so insecure that I deemed it prudent, in order to avoid a collision with the Arabs, to engage a Bedouin chief to accompany us. We engaged one Awaith, a sheik of the Fedaga Shamar, to give us his protection until we had passed the danger. Placing one of his sons on his mares, and ordering him to follow us along the banks of the river, he stepped upon my raft, where he spent his time in giving us accounts of wars and gazus, smoking his pipe, and pounding coffee. 
We reached Tekrit in three days without accident or adventure. Bedouin tents and moving swarms of men and animals were occasionally seen on the river banks, but under the protection of our sheikh we met with no hindrance. Tekrit is almost the only permanent settlement of any importance between Mosul and Baghdad. It is now a small town, but was once a place of some size and strength. Tekrit is chiefly famous as the birthplace of the celebrated Saleh ed-Din, better known to the English reader as Saladin, the hero of the Crusades and the magnanimous enemy of our Richard Codelion. His father, Ayub, a chief of a Kurdish tribe of Rahwandus, was governor of its castle for the Seljukian monarchs of Persia. Mosul itself sustained a siege from Saladin, who was repulsed by its Atabeg, or hereditary prince. Military expeditions into the Sinjar and other parts of Mesopotamia were amongst the exploits of this great Mussulman hero. Tikrit is now inhabited by a few Arabs who carry on as raftsmen the traffic of the river between Mosul and Baghdad. Nothing marks more completely the result of the unjust and injurious system pursued by the port in its Arabian territories than the almost entire absence of permanent settlements and of commercial intercourse on the banks of the Euphrates and Tigris. Two of the finest rivers of Asia, reaching into the very heart of the Turkish dominions, spreading fertility through districts almost unquelled for the richness of their soil and for the varied nature of their produce, and navigable one for nearly 850 miles from the sea, the other for nearly 600 miles, are of no account whatever to the state upon which nature has conferred such eminent advantages. The depredations of the Arabs, unchecked by the government, and the rapacity and dishonesty of the Turkish authorities, who levy illegal and exorbitant taxes upon every mode of transit, whether by land or water, and who make monopolies of all articles of produce and of merchandise, effectually check the efforts of the natives themselves, by no means deficient in commercial activity and enterprise, to engage in trade or to navigate the rivers. Even the European merchant, with privileges secured by treaties and protection afforded by consuls and diplomatic agency, is scarcely able to struggle against the insecurity of the country through which he must convey his goods, and against the blackmail exacted by Arab sheiks, secretly encouraged or abetted by the Turkish governors. From the most wanton and disgraceful neglect, the Tigris and Euphrates, in the lower part of their course, are breaking from their natural beds, forming vast marshes, turning fertile districts into a wilderness, and becoming unnavigable to vessels of even the smallest burden. The very highway from Mosul, and consequently from the capital, to Baghdad, in order to avoid the restless Bedouin, is carried along the foot of the Kurdish hills, leaving the river, adding many days to the journey, and exposing caravans to long delays from swollen streams. Even this road is no longer secure, for the utter negligence and dishonesty that have of late marked the conduct of the Turkish authorities in southern Turkey have led to the interruption of this channel of commerce. The direct road to Baghdad from the north would be across Mesopotamia, and along the banks of the Tigris, through a country uninterrupted by a single stream of any size or by a single hill. Whilst caravans are now frequently nearly six weeks on their way from Mosul to Baghdad, they would scarcely be as many days by the desert. 
a few military posts on the river, a proper system of police, encouragement to the cultivating tribes to settle in villages, and the construction of a common cart-road would soon lead to perfect security and to the establishment of considerable trade. This is not the place to discuss the relative merits of the various routes to India, but it may be observed that the time is probably not far distant when a more direct and speedy communication than hitherto exists with that empire will be sought by the banks of the tigris and euphrates where railways and steam navigation can both be advantageously brought into operation the navigation of the Persian Gulf is at all times open and safe, and a glance at the map will show that a line through the Mediterranean, the port of Suedia, Aleppo, Mosul, Baghdad, Busra, and the Indian Ocean to Bombay, is as direct as can well be desired. This must be the second Indian route before extended civilization and Christianity can afford a reasonable basis for those gigantic schemes which would carry a line of iron through countries almost unknown, and scarcely yet visited by a solitary European traveller. Between Tikrit and Baghdad there is much to interest the traveller who for the first time floats down a river winding through the great alluvial plains of Chaldea. The country has, however, been so frequently described that I will not detain the reader with more than a general sketch of it. Our rafts glided noiselessly onward, without furrowing with a ripple the quiet surface of the stream. Leaving Tikrit, we first passed a small whitewashed Mussulman tomb, rising on the left or eastern bank, in a plain that still bears the name of Dura. It was here, as some believe, that Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was threescore cubits and breadth six cubits, and called together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counsellors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to its dedication, and that certain Jews would not serve his gods, nor fall down and worship the golden image that he had set up. It is now a wilderness with here and there a shapeless mound, the remains of some ancient habitation. This place is not otherwise unknown to history, for it was here that after the death of Emperor Julian, his successor Jovian concluded a disgraceful peace with the Persian king Shapur, and saved the Roman army by yielding to the enemy the five great provinces to the east of the Tigris. It was here, too, that he crossed the Tigris, a broad and deep stream, and commenced his disastrous retreat through Mesopotamia. Not far below, and on the same side of the river, the great canal of the Naharwan, the wonder of Arab geographers, robbed the Tigris of a large portion of its waters. Below the Naharwan, ruins, walls, and dwellings built chiefly of large pebbles united by a strong cement, a mode of construction peculiar to the Sasian and early Arab periods, stand on the alluvial cliffs. They are called Eski, or Old Baghdad, the Arabs as usual assigning a more ancient site to the modern city. A tower, about two hundred feet high, now rises above the eastern bank of the river, an ascending way winds round it on the outside like the spiral of a screw, reminding the traveller of the common ideal picture of the Tower of Babel. It marks the site of the ancient city of Samara, where the Roman army under Jovian rested after marching and fighting a long summer's day. It subsequently became the capital of Motesim Bilach, the eighth caliph of the Abbasid dynasty. Weary of the frequent seditions of the turbulent inhabitants of Baghdad, he resolved to change the seat of government, and chose Samara as his residence. 
If he did not build, he beautified the city, and displayed in it great magnificence. The modern town, inhabited by Arabs, consists of a few falling houses surrounded by a mud wall defended by bastions and towers. On both sides of the river, as the raft is carried gently along by the now sluggish current, the traveller sees huge masses of brickwork, jutting out from the falling banks or overhanging the precipice of earth which hems in the stream. Here and there one sees the remains of the palaces and castles of the last Persian kings and of the first caliphs. The place is still called Gadesia or Kadesia, and near it was fought that great battle which gave to the new nation issuing from the wilds of Arabia the dominion of the Eastern world. Remains of an earlier period are not wanting. A huge mound abutting on the west bank of the river, and still within sight of Samara, is known to the Arabs as the Sid-ul-Nimrud, the wall or rampart of Nimrud. The current becomes more gentle at every broad reach, until the raft scarcely glides past the low banks. The water has lost its clearness and its purity. Tinged by the alluvial soil, it has turned to a pale yellow color. The river at length widens into a noble stream. Groups of half-naked Arabs gather together on the banks to gaze at the travelers. A solitary raft of firewood for Baghdad floats, like ourselves, almost imperceptibly along. We are now amidst the date groves. If it be autumn, clusters of golden fruit hang beneath the fan-like leaves. If spring, the odor of orange blossoms fills the air. The cooing of the doves that flutter amongst the branches begets a pleasing melancholy, and feeling of listlessness and repose. The raft creeps round a projecting bank, and two gilded domes and four stately minarets, all glittering in the rays of an eastern sun, suddenly rise high above the dense bed of palms. They are of the Mosque of Katamein, which covers the tombs of two of the imams or holy saints of the Shia sect. The low banks swarm with Arabs, men, women, and naked children. Mud hovels screened by yellow mats and groaning water-wheels worked by the patient ox are seen beneath the palms. The tigris becomes wider and wider, and the stream is almost motionless. Circular boats of reeds coated with bitumen skim over the water. Horsemen and riders on white asses hurry along the riverside. Turks in flowing robes and white turbans, Persians in high black caps and close-fitting tunics, the Bokhara pilgrim in his white headdress and wayworn garments, the Bedouin chief in his tasseled kefir and striped abba, Baghdad ladies with their scarlet and white draperies fretted with threads of gold and their black horsehair veils concealing even their wanton eyes, Persian women wrapped in their sightless garments, and Arab girls in their simple blue shirts, are all mingled together in one motley crowd. A busy stream of travellers flows without ceasing from the gates of the western suburb of Baghdad to the sacred precincts of Katamein. A pine-shaped cone of snowy whiteness rises to the right. Near it are one or two drooping palms that seem fast falling to decay, like the building over which they can no longer throw their shade. This is the tomb of Zobaid, the lovely queen of Harun al-Rashid, a name that raises many a pleasant association and recalls to memory a thousand romantic dreams of early youth. We pass the palace of the governor, 
an edifice of mean materials and proportions. At its windows the pasha himself and the various officers of his household may be seen reclining on their divans amidst wreaths of smoke. A crazy bridge of boats crosses the stream and appears to bar all further progress. At length the chains are loosened, two or three of the rude vessels are withdrawn, and the rafts glide gently through. A few minutes more, and we are anchored beneath the spreading folds of the British flag, opposite a handsome building, not crumbling into ruins like its neighbors, but kept in repair with European neatness. A small iron steamer floats motionless before it. We have arrived at the dwelling of the English Consul General and political agent of the East India Company at Baghdad. It was early in the morning of the 26th October that I landed at the well-remembered quay of the British Residency. In the absence of Colonel Rawlinson, then in England, his political duties had been confined to Captain Kemble, now the East India Company's resident at Bushire. He received me with great kindness, and I acknowledge with gratitude the hospitality and effective assistance I invariably expected from him during my sojourn at Baghdad and my researches in Babylonia. More than ten years had passed since my first visit to the city. Time had worked its changes amongst those who then formed the happy and hospitable English society of Baghdad. Dr. Ross was no more. In him, Arab as well as European, rich as well as poor, Mohammedan as well as Christian, had lost a generous and faithful friend. Twelve years ago four steamers floated on the Tigris, and were engaged in exploring the then almost unknown rivers of Mesopotamia and Susiana. Their officers formed a small English colony in Baghdad. Three of those vessels had long been withdrawn, one alone having been left to keep up a monthly communication between this city and Busra. It is to be regretted, however, that a vessel better suited to the navigation of the rivers has not been selected. The expedition under Colonel Chesney, and the subsequent ascent of the Euphrates, by far the most arduous undertaking connected with its navigation, but accomplished with great skill by Captain Campbell of the East India Company's service, have proved that for ordinary purposes this river in its present condition is not navigable even in the lower part of its course. The neglect to keep up the embankments has increased the obstacles, and it is doubtful whether a steamer of even the smallest useful size could now find its way through the great marshes that absorb the waters of the Euphrates for nearly two hundred miles above its confluence with the Tigris and Korna. The latter river is, for the present, navigable from the Persian Gulf to vessels drawing from three to four feet water almost as far as to Crete and probably for vessels purposely constructed as far as Nimrud. The usual negligence and indifference of the Turkish government are, however, bringing about the same changes in the course and condition of this stream as in those of the Euphrates. Baghdad, with its long vaulted bazaars rich with the produce and merchandise of every clime, its mixed population of Turks, Arabs, Persians, Indians, and men of all eastern nations, its palm groves and gardens, its painted palaces and unsightly hovels, its present misery and its former magnificence, have been so frequently described that I will not detain the reader with any minute account of this celebrated city. Tyranny, disease, and inundations have brought it very low. 
nearly half of the space enclosed within its walls is now covered by heaps of ruins and the population is daily decreasing without the hope of change during my residence in Baghdad, no one could go far beyond the gates without the risk of falling into the hands of wandering arabs who prowled unchecked over the plains keeping the city itself almost in a continual state of siege notwithstanding these drawbacks the importance of its position is so great that Baghdad must at all times command a considerable trade it is a link between the east and the west it is the storehouse from which the tribes of the desert obtain their clothing and their supplies and it is the key to the holy places annually sought by thousands upon thousands of Persian pilgrims of the Shia sect. The only remains of the Babylonian period hitherto discovered within the city walls are the ruins of an enormous drain or subterranean passage, built of large square bricks bearing the name of Nebuchadnezzar. The lofty pile of sun-dried bricks, intermixed with layers of reeds, called Akerkuf, which now rises in the midst of a marsh to the west of the Tigris, about four or five miles from the city gates, has frequently been described. During my visit to Baghdad, it was not easy to reach this ruin on account of the swamp, and as it is merely a solid mass of mud masonry, excavations in it would scarcely have led to results of any interest or importance. I found the country around Baghdad so overrun with Bedouins and other tribes in open revolt against the government that it was some time before I could venture to leave the city for the ruins of Babylon. Not to lose time, I employed the Jabors who had accompanied me from Mosul in excavating some mounds not far from the gates of the city, on the eastern bank of the Tigris. The largest was called Tel Mohammed, and was about four miles from Baghdad, near the Arab village of Gerara. The only objects of any interest discovered there were several hollow bronze balls, with the name of a king engraved upon them in Babylonian cuneiform characters, a few rude images of the Assyrian Venus in baked clay, such as are found in most ruins of the same period, a pair of bronze ankle rings, some terracotta vases, and other relics of the same nature. Foundations in brick masonry were also uncovered, but there were no traces of sculpture or inscriptions. It was not until the 5th of December that I was able to leave Baghdad. I had been struggling with my old enemy, intermittent fever, and the surrounding country was still in the hands of the Arabs, two reasons for remaining within the gates. At length, Abd Pasha, the governor of the province, placed himself at the head of his troops, and marched against the rebellious tribes. Before beginning his campaign, however, he had to dam the mouth of a large canal called the Hindia, in order to drain the vast marshes to the west of Babylon. Into these inaccessible swamps the Arabs had driven their buffaloes, and there they defied the Turkish troops. Before going to Hillach I determined to visit the governor, and to make acquaintance with several sheiks of the southern tribes friendly to the Turkish government who were in his camp. I accordingly left Baghdad, accompanied by M. Aristarchi, an accomplished Greek gentleman in the service of the port, and by one Ahmed al-Qad, a highly intelligent, active, and faithful Arab of the tribe of the Agail, who had long been in the service of Captain Jones. His acquaintance with the country, and his connection by marriage with Farah the Shamar chief, rendered him a very useful guide and companion in a journey through the desert. 
leaving Bakdad after fording ditches and wading through water and deep mud, in three hours' time we came to the caravanserai of Khan Izad, where we found Timur Mirza, one of the exiled Persian princes. He was surrounded by hawks of various kinds standing on perches fixed in the ground, and by numerous attendants, each bearing a falcon on his wrist. Amongst his own countrymen and the Arabs, the prince held the first place as a sportsman. His gun was unerring in its aim, his falcons were unequalled for their training, and he knew every hunting ground within many days' journey of Bakdad. He was no less famed for courage in war than for skill in the chase, and his exploits in both are equally notorious among the tribes of Mesopotamia. The plains between Khan Isad and the Euphrates are covered with a perfect network of ancient canals and watercourses. But a drought is upon the waters of Babylon, and they were dried. Their lofty embankments, stretching on every side in long lines until they are lost in the hazy distance, or magnified by the mirage into mountains, still defy the hand of time, and seem rather the work of nature than of man. The face of the country, too, is dotted with mounds and shapeless heaps, the remains of ancient towns and villages. A long ride of ten hours through this scene of solitude and desolation brought us to the tents of the Pasha of Bakdad, pitched on the western bank of the Euphrates, below the village of Musayib, and on the inlet of the Hindia Canal. A string of boats had been placed across the river to connect the camp of the governor with Bakdad. As we approached, we heard a loud hum of human voices but the whole encampment was concealed by dense clouds of dust. Once over the bridge, we found ourselves in the midst of a crowd of Turkish soldiers, Arabs, and workmen of every kind, hurrying to and fro in wild disorder, some bearing earth and mud in baskets or in their cloaks, others bending under the weight of bundles of brushwood, mats, and ropes. Women and girls were mingled with the men, and as they labored, they chanted in a monotonous tone verses on the pasha and their chiefs, improvised for the occasion. The busy throng was building up the dam which was to shut out the waters of the Euphrates from the canal, dry the marshes, and bring the rebellious tribes to obedience. The nature of the materials and of the work did not, however, promise a very favorable or speedy result. They had indeed no sooner raised half their frail barrier of earthen fastings than the impetuous current washed away in a night the fruits of a month's toil. The pasha had summoned to his aid all the tribes that still owned his authority. His tents were crowded with Arab sheiks from the plains and Kurdish bays from the mountains. About two thousand regular troops and a large body of irregular horse and foot completed the motley army he had gathered around him at the Hindia. I spent the following day with Abde Pasha, who was an ardent sportsman, and entertained me with hawking. The Arab and Kurdish chiefs, who were in his camp, were summoned at dawn to accompany him. We formed altogether a very gay and goodly company. Bustards, hares, gazelles, francolins, and several wild animals abounded in the jungle and the plains, and before we returned in the afternoon, scarcely a horseman was without some trophy of the chase dangling from his saddle. The hawk most valued by eastern sportsmen is the Shaheen, a variety of the northern peregrine falcon, and esteemed the most noble of the race. Although the smallest in size, it is celebrated for its courage and daring, and is constantly the theme of Persian verse. Those from the Gebel Shamar, in Nejd, are the most prized, but, 
being only brought by occasional pilgrims from Mecca, are very rare. The next best are said to come from Tokat in Asia Minor. The Shaheen should be caught and trained when young. It strikes its quarry in the air, and may be taught to attack even the largest eagle. The next in value is the Balaban, which can be trained to strike its quarry either in the air or on the ground. It is found in the neighborhood of Baghdad and in other parts of Mesopotamia, is caught and trained when full-grown, and is flown at gazelles, hares, cranes, bustards, partridges, and francolins. The Baz and Shabaz, Astropalambarius the Gossok, and the Falcolinarius, is remarkable for the beauty of its speckled plumage and for its size. It strikes in the air and on the ground, and if well trained, may take cranes and other large game. The chark, Falco servialis, the usual falcon of the Bedouins, always strikes its quarry on the ground, except the eagle, which it may be trained to fly at in the air. It is chiefly used for gazelles and bustards, but will also take hares and other game. The bird usually hawked by the Arabs is the middle-sized bustard, or haubara. It is almost always captured on the ground, and defends itself vigorously with wings and beak against its assailant, which is often disabled in the encounter. The falcon is generally trained to this quarry with a fowl. The method pursued is very simple. It is first taught to take its raw meat from a man or from the ground, the distance being daily increased by the falconer. When the habit is acquired, the flesh is tied to the back of a fowl. The falcon will at once seize its usual food, and receives also the liver of the fowl, which is immediately killed. A bustard is then, if possible, captured alive, and used in the same way. In a few days the training is complete, and the hawk may be flown at any large bird on the ground. The falconry, however, in which Easterners take most delight, is that of the gazelle, for this very noble and exciting sport, the falcon and greyhound must be trained to hunt together by a process unfortunately somewhat cruel. In the first place, the bird is taught to eat its daily ration of raw meat fastened on the stuffed head of a gazelle. The next step is to accustom it to look for its food between the horns of a tame gazelle. The distance between the animal and the falconer is daily increased, until the hawk will seek its meat when about half a mile off. A greyhound is now loosed upon the gazelle, the falcon being flown at the same. When the animal is seized, which of course soon takes place, its throat is cut, and the hawk is fed with a part of its flesh. After thus sacrificing three gazelles, the education of the falcon and greyhound is declared to be complete. The chief art in training is to teach the two to single out the same gazelle, and the dog not to injure the falcon when struggling on the ground with the quarry. The greyhound, however, soon learns to watch the movements of its companion, without whose assistance it could not capture its prey. The falcon, when loosed from its jesses, flies steadily and near the ground towards the retreating gazelles, and marking one, soon separates it from the herd. It then darts at the head of the affrightened animal, throws it to the ground, or only checks it in its rapid course. The greyhound rarely comes up before the blow has been more than once repeated. The falconer then hastens to secure the quarry. 
should the dog not succeed in capturing the gazelle after it has been struck for the third or fourth time the hawk will generally sulk and refuse to hunt any longer i once saw a very powerful falcon belonging to abdipasha hold a gazelle until the horseman succeeded in spearing the animal the fleetness of the gazelle is so great that without the aid of the hawk very few dogs can overtake it unless the ground be heavy after rain the pursuit of the gazelle with the falcon and hound over the boundless plains of assyria and babylonia is one of the most exhilarating and graceful of sports displaying equally the noble qualities of the horse the dog and the bird the time of day best suited for hawking is very early in the morning before the eagles and kites are soaring in the sky the falcon should not be fed for several hours before it is taken to the chase when not hunting the arabs give it meat only once a day some hawks require to be hooded such as the chark and the shaheen others need no covering for the eyes the hood is generally made of colored leather with eyes worked on it in beads and gold and variegated threads tassels and ornaments of various kinds are added and the great chiefs frequently adorn a favorite bird with pearls and precious stones to the legs are sometimes fastened small bells few hawks will return to the falconer without a lure which consists of the wing of a bustard or fowl or of a piece of meat attached to a string and swung round in the air the eastern huntsman has a different call for each variety of falcon a good chark will sometimes take as many as eight or ten bustards or five or six gazelles in the course of a morning I have introduced these remarks on falconry, founded on personal experience, as this noble science is probably the greatest antiquity, and is still the favorite pursuit of the eastern warrior. Before leaving the camp I obtained letters to the principal chiefs of the southern tribes from the Pasha, as well as from Wadi, the sheik of the Zobaid, and other influential sheiks. After riding about four hours we perceived a huge hill to the south. As we drew nearer, its flat, table-like top and perpendicular sides, rising abruptly from an alluvial plain, showed that it was the work of man, and not a natural elevation. At length we could plainly distinguish around it great embankments, the remains of walls and canals. Gradually, as the caravan slowly advanced, the ruin assumed a definite shape. It was the Mound of Babel better known to travellers as the Mujeli Bay, a name not now given to it by the Arab inhabitants of the surrounding country. This is the first great ruin seen on approaching ancient Babylon from the north. Beyond it, long lines of palms hem in the Euphrates, which now winds through the midst of the ancient city. To the vast mound of Babel secede long undulating heaps of earth, bricks, and pottery, a solitary mass of brickwork, rising from the summit of the largest mound, marks the remains known to the Arabs as the Mujeli Bay, or the Overturned. Other shapeless heaps of rubbish cover for many an acre the face of the land. On all sides, fragments of glass, marble, pottery, and inscribed brick are mingled with that peculiar nitrous and blanched soil which, bred from the remains of ancient habitations, checks or destroys vegetation, and renders the site of Babylon a naked and hideous waste. 
owls start from the scanty thickets, and the foul jackal skulks through the furrows. Truly, the glory of kingdoms and the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency is as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Wild beasts of the desert lie there, and their houses are full of doleful creatures, and owls dwell there, and satyrs dance there, and the wild beasts of the islands cry in their desolate houses, and dragons in their pleasant palaces, for her day has come. A few black tents and flocks of sheep and camels were scattered over the yellow plain. They belonged chiefly to the Zobaid, an ancient tribe, renowned in the history of the conquering Arabs under their first caliphs, and now pasturing their flocks in the wilds of Babylonia. From Amran, the last of the great mounds, a broad and well-trodden track winds through thick groves of palms. About an hour's ride beneath a pleasant shade brings the traveller to the falling gateway of the town of Hilach. A mean bazaar, crowded with Arabs, camels, and asses, leads to a bridge of boats across the Euphrates. The principal part of the town, containing the fort and the residence of the governor, is on the opposite side of the river. We turned off, however, to the left, as our quarters had been made ready on the western bank. A party of irregular troops sent out to meet me, conducted my caravan to a spacious house standing on the very edge of the stream, and belonging to one of the principal families of the place. It had once contained rich furniture, and handsomely decorated rooms in the Persian style, but was now fast falling into utter ruin. The cold wind whistled through the rotten wooden panels of the windows, for there was no glass and the crumbling ceiling and floor threatened to give way together. In this frail dwelling, we prepared to pass a part of our winter in Babylonia. End of chapter 21 Recording by Sarah Irene Rosenberg, Chicago, Illinois